0: and then we threw a scrambling net over to get survivors off the back end of the Evans. So.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there, there, to, out there to take country. Country. I
2: did feel a lot of regret. My friends were still getting
1: killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Kill often. Do I leave under
2: fire? And that was
1: a heavy responsibility, I guess, mm. on my shoulders, that I didn't want to screw up. you be resilient to a
2: War itself on. is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as
1: if it's something glorious. What, what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country? The you volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the land. Ray James is a veteran of the Vietnam War and is currently the president of New South Wales RSL. He served in the Royal Australian Navy on HMAS Sydney, the Vungtau Ferry. He was also on HMAS Melbourne when it collided with the US destroyer, the Frank E. Evans in 1969. Ray spoke with Angus Horton about his life of service in the military, in the police force and now in the veteran community.
2: I'm Angus Horton, speaking today with Ray James. Ray,
0: welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Ray, let's go back to the beginning. When and where were you born? I was born in North Queensland, far North Queensland, a place called Babinda, just south of Kansas, a sugar town. I was born there, but um, after six months, uh, my parents moved down to the Burdekin to Ayr, and I grew up in a town called Ayr uh, in the Burdekin Valley, a uh, sugar town again, where my dad was a cane cutter. My three brothers were born in Ayr. So I've got three brothers. And do you have any military history in your family? Yeah, my dad served in uh, World War II. He was 16 years old. Um, he actually, uh, on the Kokoda track in 1942, um, he went on to, um, to Balikpapan, the landing at Balikpapan, and then put his hand up and went from Balikpapan in Borneo to Japan for the occupation forces, and he returned home in 1947. So at 16, Ray, I mean, which, um, did you recall which unit he was with? Yeah, it was the 25th Battalion, 7th Division. That's a pretty young age. It was. Look, he, he attempted twice to, to join the army. He, his parents had split up and uh, he was uh, one of seven siblings. He was the baby and uh, he was left to fend for himself. He found himself uh, chasing his older brother who was in Babinda and that's where I was born. And uh, he went up to Babinda uh, to join his brother but wasn't very amical. Uh, he found himself uh, working uh, as a... Um, roused about and that out in Mount Isa and he decided to join the army. On two occasions, uh, his grandmother in Orange found out that he'd joined and he was too young. She contacted the authorities and they caught him. But the second of time he was in New Guinea uh, on the Kokoda track and the Japanese were advancing and um, so there was no way he was going back or they were sending him back.
2: And they needed every rifle on the track at that day. Exactly.
0: Did he talk to you at all later about his experiences He's similar to a lot of other people. No, he didn't talk a lot about it. He talked about a li- little bits and pieces of it, um, about how he lost his best mate in the landing at Ballack Papman. Um, he talked a little bit about Kokoda, but not a lot. And um, uh, he sort of was, uh, I know now that he suffered from PTSD, um, but that wasn't acknowledged back in the, in the day. So, um, but I know the, the trauma he put my mum through, and uh, me being the eldest uh, of four siblings, um, I, I recall all that now. When you joined the military later, did he sort of open up to you a bit more about the military? Not much. He he uh, took some time to sign my papers. I was only 15 when I joined the Navy um, and uh, I just started an apprentice mechanic and he was very uh, angry that I wanted to join the Navy and throw away an apprenticeship. Um, but he finally signed the papers and uh, he said, you're doing a good thing, he said, because the... Uh, the Navy used to be well-fed when I remember the Navy in World War II, he said, and we used to sit there with bully beef, cans of bully beef and, uh, and rations, he said, and the Navy guys were sitting down to hot meals.
2: You know, it's funny, Ray, um, my dad uh, was Navy World War II. He was on the supply ship, the Mirka. Then he was on Shropshire, which was our county-class cruiser when we lost Canberra. He joined the Navy for exactly what you said, that he was always guaranteed a bunk, three meals a day, and he had a regular place he could stow his gear. The only difference was uh, the ship that he picked, uh, the Shropshire, was attached to the American Seventh Fleet and they got involved in the Battle of Lady Gulf where you had these kamikazes coming at you like Exocet missiles. It wasn't quite the, the quite the life oh, um, that they had. But, but still, th- there is a clear distinction between the grunts, you know, the army guys who always get it hardest. I mean, you're your dad would have seen the absolute worst of the Second World War on Kokoda and and, and the track. And i um, very sorry that the effects of that then flowed to your family as it did to all those, all the guys. I, I mean, hence why the RSL, which we'll talk about later, you know, was formed after the previous war to, to, to look after these guys
0: because you couldn't speak to someone else who hadn't gone through your experiences. Exactly. Look, my dad... Dad also brought back a, a, a Japanese um, sword, a colonel sword, that he acquired. He had to surrender that because he used to drink pretty heavily and he'd bring out that and chase my mum around the house and they're things that I remember. But at the end of the day, he spoke about one story about how shot a Japanese a soldier and he went over to make sure he was dead and kicked him but he had a bomb strapped to him and he blew up and Dad ended up with a bit of Japanese um, all over him and... Uh, he uh, wasn't very well. Welcome back to the foxholes, smelling of um, of uh, um, dead Japanese. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, sadly, there was a lot of that with the booby traps and things. I mean, people just have no idea the savagery of, of that war, and um, you know, it's just as well CNN wasn't there to record it as it was in your war. And out of interest, you're so you're the eldest, and um, and it's funny how you joined up in the military at fifteen. Um, you know, I mean, admittedly, Vietnam had, hadn't had sort of kicked off to the extent that your dad had,
0: had sort of signed on when he was 16, but it's funny how you, you all join early. Yeah, look, m- my dad tried to join the Army again in the early 60s when Vietnam started and um, but they found out that he had a heart a murmur and they didn't take him, so he tried to get back into the military. Um, but, yeah, I joined at 15, and then my uh, next brother, down, John, he joined uh, three years later as a 17-year-old through Cerberus, and so he went on to do three years, but he left after three.
2: Yeah, and and for our listeners, Cerberus is obviously a na- our naval base, so an- another Navy boys. So what made you
0: pick the, the Navy? I mean, w- was it the lifestyle or...? I was actually on a, a school or a uh, church group excursion. I was a part of the, uh, the Church of England church with a group called the Companions, and we had a uh, a weekend uh, uh, exercise over a magnetic island and HMAS Melbourne, the aircraft carrier, just happened to be in port and I saw it out there and I thought, that's what I want to do, I want to join the Navy and sail the seven seas and enjoy the world.
2: You were just a teenager when the war in Vietnam started. Do you have any thoughts about the conflict at the
0: time or were you just excited about the adventure? Nothing good at the time, just excited about joining the Navy and um, and uh, going to sea and sailing around the world. Can you tell us about your basic training? Yeah, look, I, um, I'd um i never been south of Mackay. Um, in 1965, I, I found myself at HMAS Lewin in uh, Fremantle, West Australia, with a whole heap of a uh, couple of hundred boys uh, from all over Australia. And it was very frightening um, because I'd never been away from home. and. Uh, and similarly, similar the other guys uh, that uh, joined with me um, were, were the same and we sort of formed a friendship from day one. Uh, when we got off the bus at around midnight from a flight from Sydney, uh, we were being yelled at, screamed at by obviously guys from World War Two and Korea, um, calling us all sorts of little names and getting us into line and that really put the, uh, a shock through our system and saying, what have we done? Where are we? But, um um we, we sorted it out over the next few months and uh, twelve months later we joined the fleet. You know it's funny
2: talking with you. Um, I often have flashbacks to my own memories and and I spent in 87 a very enjoyable time at Lewin. Um, so I know you did your basic training there. I went there f- um, in between postings and and I just remember what a beautiful base it was. you know, you're right at the mouth of the swan there it comes out and and um it's quite funny i actually had command of a patrol boat at the time so that was quite enjoyable sort of going up and down the river but it's it's a it's a beautiful base and and for those who know bases like the navy by its virtue of being a sea-based organization is always on the water in beautiful places unlike the air force which are right out at you know whoop whoop sort of thing exactly in december 1965 you're posted to
0: sydney you were an engineer on board. Yeah, I was a, an ME uh, or an ordinary – well, I was a JRME, actually, because I was still under 18. So I called it Junior Recruit ME slash ME. But we were ordinary seamen. We went to sea um, to do basic training in everywhere, do a little bit down – down the engine room and boiler room, but also in the mess decks and seamanship type stuff for the first 12, uh, for the first part of my, my sea training, before I then went down and done my engineering course, uh, become a uh, marine uh, mechanical engineer, they called it then, but basically a stoker, as known in the Navy, um, and uh, done my stoker's course at Cerberus, a uh, 3 months course, then went back to the Sydney. In March 1966, you're on board Sydney on your first
2: trip to Vietnam. Can you tell us a bit about what Sydney was doing then?
0: We were taking troops and equipment. Um, that was my first trip. I'd just turned 17 the month before um, uh, in March. Uh, we sailed to Vietnam via Manus Island uh, up in uh, New Guinea. Um, we had troops on board, equipment on board, and we went to um to, Vang Tao to offload the troops and that. In those days, we only had one crane on board, so the uh, they ended up having another four cranes placed on board the ship to make it quicker to, to do that. I think we spent about three, four days in harbour that time to unload the equipment and that. And, uh, but we spoke to the troops on the way up, the soldiers that were on board. Um, I think it was about 450 uh, soldiers on board. Um, they joined in with the crew um, doing shipside um, ship's duties as such, but also uh, they used to have uh, uh, firing practice on the um, back end of the uh, Sydney um, and they used to do pre- preparation for for their for their uh, duties in, in Vietnam, and they mixed with with the sailors on board. We had social gatherings, um, um, games, and that sort of stuff, board games as well as uh, boxing tournaments. Uh, I was in our boxing team on board H.M.S. Sydney. The um, the navy had a team of boxers, and the army used to have a team of boxers, and we used to have. Um, Amateur boxing f- uh, tournaments on board the Sydney on the way to Vietnam and on the way back. And uh, I'd had a couple of fights on that trip up there too. So you're going to Vung Thal and hence the reason
2: why it's called the Vung Thal Ferry. And I think Sydney made something like 25 trips up there. How many did you did you end up making? I'd done six trips during 66, yeah. 67. When you would go out, you would discharge, obviously, your cargo being men and materials.
0: And then typically... You know, what are you picking up coming home? Yeah, we'd pick up some troops coming back too and and, and I think there was a bit of equipment too. We also um, uh, used to call into a port like Singapore or Hong Kong as a bit of a wreck on the way back as well. I mean, obviously as a, as a young 17-year-old and uh, and that first time in the Far East and going to ports like Singapore and Hong Kong and in those days they were pretty raw um, well before Lee Yu got into Singapore and all that sort of stuff. So it was a very exciting time in that sense. Um, but also for the soldiers.
2: You'd be in a position where you'd know what these guys were like going up. A lot of them are, you know, chocos, you know, green green guys. Um, And then they come back after serving and some of them, you know, had terrible experiences up there. Um,
0: Do you recall any of those experiences sharing with the guys? Especially around beer issue time. We had a beer issue each uh, evening and uh, uh, we used to, communicate with those, mix with those guys and uh, make friends and that. Some of the guys on board, uh, some of the sailors even uh, had their brothers uh, come up on the Sydney together. Um, there was a couple of them. There's a couple of Navy New um, articles of, of depicting that, showing photos of a soldier and a sailor who were being brothers. So, uh, yeah, look, and you could tell the difference. Not at that time I didn't, but years later I could say the difference of talking to a soldier on the way up as opposed to talking to one on the way home. It was a totally different sort of um, atmosphere around those soldiers, yes. And when you said you had your beer issue, was it like two cans a day? Oh, look, in those early days, it used to be one can. That was a big can in those days. We didn't have the smaller cans. Um... And, uh, and full strength too. Full strength. There was Reesha's. I remember it real well. I've become a, a very accustomed to Reesha's beer. Uh, I'm still a Reesha's beer drinker today. Yeah, me too. And I always say that's the beer we drink around here. It was a New South Wales beer. But, yeah, it was a big can of beer. And same as at the boxing tournaments, you used to get um, uh, when it was one, one can, was the big can, which was two cans in one, uh, the winner got one, one can and so did the loser. So we all, all won at the boxing tournament. Did you go ashore much when you were in Vietnam? No, not in Vung Tau. There was no shore leave. Obviously, our small boats and that went, went, to, went to into uh, alongside but to take things alongside, but there was no shore leave in Vietnam, so it was in and out as quick as we could. Yes, so to your point,
2: the R&R that you would get is when you drop off at Singapore, which would be far more interesting
0: and indeed safer. Exactly. A bit, a bit of R&R on the way back, and it will be Singapore or Hong Kong, yeah.
2: Are there any other standout memories that you recall from the time Yeah, look, in
0: Tao I do because at night time you could see the tracer bullets um, on shore. We weren't far from the shore. I mean, you couldn't throw a tennis ball but you could see the land really close. Um, We were in close. There was uh, always um, preparation. Uh, We had uh, armed guards around the ship uh, on foredeck. I mean, it was funny that because uh, the the SLRs that we carried uh, weren't loaded so one person would have the magazine and one person would have the SLR. We had... Uh, whistles and if there was an alarm being blown by the whistle, you'd come together, load the weapon and be prepared for something because uh, they were always worried about enemy divers um, and they also, a lot of debris coming down from the Mekong Delta and that floating through there. There was numerous ships uh, anchored off Fung Tao um, and they did have some incidents uh, where they had carcasses of pigs and that where it would be uh, armed with mines or uh, explosive devices. So we used to have a, a motor cutter with chopping um, apparatus at the rear end, dragging around so any surface um, um, divers could be uh, uh, identified and uh, prevent them from coming close to the ship's side. The ship's side used to be lit up uh, with lighting so that you'd make sure no enemy divers or um, debris would float close to the ship to to damage it.
2: Uh, that's interesting. You say um, that they didn't give everyone a,
0: a magazine on their SLR. I mean, what was the point there? Well, they never were loaded, so two had to come together to have it loaded. The mind boggles me why, but yeah. um, obviously they thought that was uh, they might have had a mishap somewhere in the earlier trip or something. I'm not too sure, but but one carried the magazine and one carried the rifle. You weren't you were close, but you weren't the ma- the the rifle wasn't loaded full time. The anti-war public
2: sentiment in Australia during the Vietnam War is well documented. Did you have
0: any negative experiences yourself? Look, I, I saw the negativity of um, of uh, when we came back from Vietnam on each trip. Uh, at times we could not tie up alongside because they had strikes, and uh, we have to anchor just off Garden Island and we'd come ashore on the ferries. I uh, always remember Radar. It was uh, one of the main ferries that used to carry us uh, to and from Garden Island to Step Ashore. And when you left Garden Island Gates, you'd see some demonstrations out there. But look, it never really, it wasn't big in my sense of thing. I can't recall it being so big. I remember bits and pieces of it. Um, but we just walked straight down to the Rockers, uh, the Rock and Roll Hotel, which is uh, the Wollongaloo Bay now. But, and uh, yeah, so I never sort of um, saw much of that effect. I mean, it was a lot on TV. We never watched much TV in those days. Um, TV wasn't a big thing on board the ship. It uh, used to be eight millimetre um, film that you saw on a on a, on, a, on a ship and show a few movies that way. But uh, other than that, look, it never affected me.
2: It's funny you say radar. After the war, I know my father-in-law uh, was part of the Naval Officers Association, and at Anzac Day, they would always go out um, on the radar, the little you know, the little ferry. And, you know, later I, I ended up joining them with my dad. And for many years we'd have Anzac Day on the radar. On the radar. And, and I wasn't aware of the – I knew it was an old ferry, but I wasn't aware of its military connection, you know, but going back to Vietnam. So there you go. Besides your time on Sydney, you also serve on Melbourne, Torrens, Parramatta and Brisbane. Now they're all different vessels. Can you tell us a little bit about each and what, what your posting was?
0: Yeah, look, in 1967, uh, towards the end of 67, coming back from Vietnam in early 68, I was selected to go to submarines in the UK. And there was about 23 stokers on board Mel- on Sydney that were put on Melbourne waiting to, to fly to the UK. Um, so I joined HMAS Melbourne, which was in refit at that time. It was um, uh, being still Refitted for the new Skyhawks and Trackers, and taking away the Sea of Venoms and the Gannets. Uh, whilst I was there, I got skin—I had a skin cancer removed from my lip—and so I didn't go to the UK. Um, the other 22 stokers did, uh, and I stayed on board the Melbourne. I was a fully AWC stoker, so I worked the um, the arrestor wires, which is catching the aircraft. So I sailed on board HMAS Melbourne, um, and uh, after the refit. And that's where I was on board Melbourne on the 3rd of June um, 1969 at 3.15am in the morning when we collided with the US Frankie Evans. Um, uh, We are on exercise sea spirit um, and Steve-O was the captain and uh, and we know the aftermath of that inquiry. The loss of 74 American sailors, three sage brothers went down on that vessel, three brothers. Um, And also there was a Father and son on board, and the son lost his life, and the father never recovered. Um, after that, uh, that um, horrible um, collision, um, we then went to Singapore for a couple of weeks to get a dummy bow put on. But
2: Ray, right, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, we we know Phil Stevenson. I mean, Phil's sadly passed. In fact, he was good friends with my dad at school, and um, we had a very interesting chat with him in his home down in Burradu. Alex and I went down to to talk with him for a prior production called For School and Country and he was vilified, he was the fall guy for that. And I remember him and he was such an honourable man that he wouldn't defend himself publicly but he that enraged his wife who then stood brilliantly to his defence. Um, but I do remember him later talking with my dad and... He said that the officers of Evans and um, Melbourne had been out previously; that had a few drinks in you know, the wardroom or whatever. And Phil had made it very clear: "I'm the capital ship. I'm the carrier. You manoeuvre yourself around me, which is always the rule of the sea. That you know, the small ships give way to the big ships. And anyway, we know what happened, and a great tragedy. And and it just shows that even in peacetime." Being in the military is a dangerous game.
0: It is. Look, I was about to go and watch that morning at at, uh, 10 to 4. Plum Asker was our MBCD officer, Commander Plum Asker, and he was always playing games with us to keep us on the line. And uh, we heard hands to collision stations. We'd never, ever practised collision stations, but everybody automatically went to their emergency stations. And I uh, I was dressed and we ran out onto the gun sponsor because my mess deck being a flight deck um, party, uh, was just outside the gun sponsor where we controlled the arrestor wires. Uh, as we ran out there, John Tuffy and myself, uh, another guy, another stoker, uh, Rev Walker was a Kellick stoker. He was crash tackling us, saying the ballers are going to blow because Rev Walker was on board Voyager when the Melbourne had collided with it in February 64. So anyway, when we got out there, we calmed Rev down. We looked up and here's the front end of the Evans, laid over to its uh, starboard side, port side up, but it was on its side um, and within two minutes it had kicked up and sunk and there was sailors on there, there was uh, yelling and screaming and uh, they, uh, 73 lives went down on that front half. We only recovered one body um, and the back end of the Evans was then tied up to the starboard quarter of the flight deck. John Tuffy and myself were detailed to go over, set up a fire hose with the FB5X and the foam drum, was it was steam but they thought it could be smoke and then we threw a scrambling net over to get survivors off the back end of the Evans and still to this day I I know that um, there's guys that I see in my runs in the RSL who were on board there with me um, remember that like it was yesterday.
2: Ray, this is just when the military training kicks in. You train and train and train and as we've all said before you know it's 99% of the time you're sitting on your ass then 1% is sheer bedlam. And that's what it was that that night for
0: you. Um, Can you tell us about your time on Torrens and Parramatta? Yeah, look, when I came back off the Melbourne, uh, we came back and it went straight to Cockatoo Island. I was posted to HMAS Penguin and I ended up on standby Torrens. Um, So for the next few months, uh, we used to travel up to Cockatoo Island and uh, I commissioned HMAS Torrens. Uh, Leander Class Frigate spent uh, the next couple of years on board on Torrens and... uh, Torrens was then, came back and went to refit in, in Dogtown, Williamtown, um, and I got a swap draft to Parramatta. Parramatta was in refit in Sydney. I was recently married, and uh, so I swapped drafts and went to Parramatta and done a workup on Parramatta. So I wasn't on Parramatta a long time, but um, I did do the workup. And then I went down and done my Petty Officer's course.
2: And, you know, for our listeners, can you tell us what class
0: a Parramatta is? Yeah, the Parramatta was a river uh, class frigate. And can you tell us about your time on Brisbane? Yeah, time on Brisbane. I uh, I got posted to Brisbane as a petty officer, um, and uh, I uh, done some time on 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 Brisbane. Went around uh, West Australia and back up around um, to Sydney, and then I went to posting after that. I got a second posting to it as the chief petty officer. So um, in the uh, in eighty in nineteen eighty one, I got posted back to her as the um, as a chief stoker.
2: I'm sort of reading through this list of. Service on ships. I'm I'm seeing that
0: you you probably missed out on your rowboat experience. Yeah, I did. I um and I'm glad I did too because the uh, some of the stokers that went over on that ship spent three and a half years in the UK and they came back pretty uh, smashed. Um, so look, I'm not saying I, I I um I uh I'm not saying I missed being on subs, but in one way I'm glad I didn't go there because today I wouldn't be married after 51 years to the woman I met. I wouldn't have met her, so I was on Torrens when I met her. So, um, so there's a couple of good things come out of that.
2: And um, it's funny. I I spend a bit of time on on Oxley, which was one of our rowboats, and it's very different to being I just posted off Derwent, you know, which was one of our DEs to shore escorts. My preference is to be above water, not below water. But but the incredible thing is that you know in a ship you're always used to the swell of the sea and the rock, and you know da da da, but I just remember the first time, you know, we submerged, how
0: incredibly peaceful it was. And that wasn't lost on me either. Look, I I, I look back at it um, on submarines. I really wanted to go to submarines because I wanted to go to the UK. And that was a reason. And that's probably not the right reason. It was one of the reasons, but it shouldn't have been the first reason.
2: Yeah, I agree. Nicer to go with your wife on a holiday. In 85, you switched from being full-time into the
0: reserves. Yeah, look, I left the Navy. Um, I, I'd, uh, I was actually on an Indian Ocean deployment uh, in 84. Uh, we'd done uh, Mombasa, India, Sri Lanka and that. Uh, my wife come and joined me in Singapore. In that time, I'd asked to sign on for another eight years. Uh, when I got to Singapore and there was 42 wives from the Brisbane crew that flew up to, to Singapore and uh, I got the message from uh, Navy postings that uh, they couldn't give me another eight years. Um, they could probably give me five but can't uh, offer any more probably after that. And I thought, okay, because at the time the Navy changed from rat struck, what they call Ratstruck, to struck, in the engineering and the technical branches and that was a whole new system of training so we were being phased out in one way or other. So um, I, uh, I said to my wife, what am I going to do? I joined the Navy at 15, I don't know nothing else, I'm scared to go out in a big wide world, I'm, I'm really content and all that. She said, "Well, you make a decision? on your way back. So I did. I made the decision on the way back from Singapore and decided to uh, to uh, retire from the full-time Navy and transfer to the reserves. And what did you do in the reserves? I was basically at FEMA, Fleet Maintenance. It changed a few names from d- over the years, but it was FEMA when I was doing Navy work there. I stayed there from uh, 1980, uh, 1986 to uh, 2014. And where was that based? At Cuttable. yeah. But there were postings to the west, and that uh, I rejected those postings. Uh, there was postings to uh, to Stirling and to Darwin, uh, to Fema up there, and to Cairns. But I maintained I'd done my reserve time in Sydney. Yes,
2: that's right. The the fleet was doing that transition from east coast to west coast. Exactly, and um and it was a big deal. You know, like many families were picked up and and sent to Stirling, which actually is a lovely naval base um, and well suited over there, but. A long <laughs> way from Sydney where we used to. Exactly.
0: When did you um, move into the New South Wales Police? I left the uh, Navy and I was... Um, my first employment was I'd done the prison officers course because I was too old to join the New South Wales Police Force at that time because yeah, there was an age limit of 30... I think it was 34. But anyway, I, uh, I went and done a corrective services course and become a prison officer. And I was only in there a short time and I... Um, Got a phone call while I was at work one day that I'd been accepted into the uh, Transport Investigation Branch, which was a police force in its own right within the State Rail Authority. They were recruiting ex-servicemen and ex-police officers from the New South Wales Police Force. Again, there was no age limit on that and they particularly wanted um, servicemen and women. They were building a, a force of 90 up to 300. In the following three years till 88... The Gunsworth government decided they didn't want two police forces because they had the same powers, Um, guns, carried guns, batons, uniform, the whole lot. So they absorbed the railway police into the New South Wales Police Force. During that initial time, I was being trained by the tactical response group at Redfern Academy uh, as an instructor in firearms and public order training and defensive tactics. So when the transfer in 88 came about, my boss then... um, Uh, Senior Sergeant Tom Lupton, um, who's now deceased, he was a sub-Branch member. Um, But anyway, he's a good mate of mine. He said, Jesse, we trained you, we want you to stay here. So I stayed with the TRG until the folding of the TRG and SWAS in uh, the late 80s. As
2: part of the TRG, I mean, they were pretty crack guys. Do you remember any particular incidents?
0: Oh, there's a lot. Look, TRG came about because of uh, the Bathurst riots. Um, and they were specialist police. They were operational. They had operational units in the four regions, so they were working full time. Um, Yes, I was in the training element, so I wasn't the tactical TRG uh, training element, but we used to train every three months. So they were well trained. They had to train every three months. If they missed one training session, they had to do the six-monthly training, and if they didn't do that, they went back to square one and started training all over again. So it put me in a right state because when the TRG folded, um, that unit became the weapons training unit for the New South Wales Police Force. Um, when it folded after the uh, shooting of Gundy by Swass and Brennan, accidental shooting by Brennan by the TRG, uh, my boss said, you better get a sergeant's job somewhere, Jesse, because we're folding. So I got a sergeant's job at Liverpool Police Station but I stayed in the weapons training unit uh, for the rest of my career in the police force, uh, which was um, until 2005.
2: And, uh, and what was it like being a sergeant at Liverpool?
0: Yeah, it was interesting. It wasn't far from home where I live. Um, I ended up from Liverpool to Campbelltown in my home uh, area. Um, it was good um, policing. Uh, we used to police the trains and the CBD, so the transit police units and the... Uh, uh, um, um, police working walking the streets, the CBD and that, we combine and do both the transport system and the uh, local um, areas around Liverpool and Campbelltown.
2: So how would you say policing would be like today compared to your time?
0: In my time when I started, we had uh, a revolver and a baton if you were first on shift because we didn't have enough batons uh, and a set of handcuffs. Now we've gone from that and I've been involved in all the training up to but not including the taser, so I was a part of the the new Glock system. I was one of the first instructors for the new weapons, uh, new Glock weapons, the expandable baton and also um, the uh, capsicum spray. So I was involved in all that. So policing has changed a lot in my time, even, but even further now with the taser. So it's uh, it's a it's a job now. It um, takes a lot of training, ongoing training. Um, I, I was involved with. Uh, I trained a lot myself. Um, with other agencies, including other state agencies and also overseas in America. And I got to learn to, to do spontaneous knife defence. Um, spontaneous knife defence and pressure point t- control technique, I really excelled in that, but we weren't allowed to use it. But after the, um, the CARDI episode over at Fairfield where one of our police officers, um, was severely, um, cut, um. um They decided to um, bring in Spontaneous Knife Defence, which I led, and uh, I managed to get uh, my instructor from America out here with help from the the CAR government to get a guy out here to train several of instructors in Spontaneous Knife Defence to prepare our police officers for edge weapons, uh, which was starting to increase and being used against not just police but other people in the community. So I'm very happy about that.
2: So, Ray, you would have noticed perhaps, the deterioration of how police are treated from when you were running Liverpool to today?
0: Yeah, there is a difference. And, look, we still meet today uh, uh, a monthly at um, uh, uh, the police that worked in our area and that, but I can see that, yeah, there has been a deterioration. And, look, a lot of it goes with uh, the changes in legislation. Um, so it's, um, it's just something that we've got to adapt to. Ray, when did you then sort of move from the police to the RSL? I was always a member of the RSL. I um, joined in um, October 1975 uh, when some sub-branches would not take Vietnam veterans but there was 25 of us Petty Officers on board the Melbourne at the time and one of the guys, um, Charlie Davis, his father was the president at Marrickville so we all went out and joined it. So I kept my membership up from 1975 um, but I got really involved in the early 2000 um, when I was um, uh, uh Based at um, at Liverpool and Campbelltown um, police stations, there were several Vietnam um, veterans, um, colleagues of mine in the police force that were members of the RSL active. So I started getting active then, and uh, but I really got active in the mid uh, uh, early two thousands where I became involved again with Ingleburn, um, and ended up being um, on the committee to the sub branch uh, vice president, the sub branch president, to district council vice president. Um, and then run for election in 2014 and got on State Council.
2: Ray, it must have been terribly hurtful for the RSL
0: to or those branches that turned down Vietnam vets. Exactly, and that's that's still an element today. Look, there's about 4,800 of our 20,000 members or 26,000 members with affiliates and auxiliary members, but uh, there's about 4,800 Vietnam veterans in RSL New South Wales which is a shame because there's twice as many of that in New South Wales, but some of the Vietnam veterans still refuse to, to be a part of the RSL movement, um, but they are a part of the um, ESO fraternity, um, i.e. in the Vietnam Veterans Association or Federation.
2: For, for those veterans to have had public and the press turn against them and then their own association, I think, would have been even far more hurtful.
0: Yeah, look, we we had our Welcome Home March in 1987, then we had the big one in Canberra as well later, but that really settled a lot of stuff. And and I say to my Vietnam veteran colleagues today that we've got to move forward from that now because we are the RSL um, and we don't want to do or let happen to the the more recent veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq and that what happened to the Vietnam veterans. So we need to turn the table and welcome everybody into the RSL movement, anyone who put on a uniform. And to your credit, you have done that admirably. Can
2: you tell us about how you became the first Navy veteran to be president of the RSL? It's
0: just worked out that way that we've never had in all the years, since 1917 in New South Wales, uh, a Navy guy at the head of the RSL in New South Wales. But after the Bergen inquiry, uh, the judicial inquiry into um, actions of the RSL in New South Wales, um, Patricia Bergen, um, Justice Bergen, she... um, her findings and recommendations um, changed the structure of RSL New South Wales from a council to a board. Uh, the council previously being, which I joined uh, early in 2014, which was representative um, of the membership, uh, to a board of uh, governance, compliance and conflicts of interest. Um, also uh, a board that was elected by the members, being a member-based organisation, uh, she identified that the members should say who are the the board members of the RSL New South Wales, as opposed to the 300-plus sub-branches voting individually. Um, So I was the first one uh, to be elected by the membership uh, to hold this position. It just happened to be that uh, in the history of the RSL New South Wales, I'm the only Navy guy.
2: It's good to have the senior service well represented.
0: And what is the RSL's strategic plan now for the future? Strategic plan is, is, is basically making sure that everyone knows what the RSL is about, who the RSL is, because there's still confusion out there, especially not just amongst the, 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 the um, population, um, but also veterans. They don't know the difference between a club limited and a sub-branch, and we're two different entities. Now, up until the mid-70s, the RSL clubs and the sub-branches were one in one, but legislation, state legislation, back in the mid '70s, said that a ESO, or sorry, a charity, could not hold a gaming license or a liquor license. So they had to split. So at the end of the day, they went their separate ways. However, the people who were the board members of RSL clubs were also the executive members of the sub branches, and that posed a conflict, and that was brought out in the judicial inquiry. But our aim today is to make sure that everybody understands who we are and what we do. Uh, and the RSL looks after all veterans and their families uh, in any which way is needed. And our, the money that is made by the, the sales of the sub-branch assets, which was the clubs, and um, in now our investment portfolios and all that, the money made from that is also under the charitable pur- Our charitable purpose is for looking after veterans and their families. So that's what our aim is, and we've got a strategic plan in place, 2021 to 2026. And a part of that plan is that um, people understand what we're about and who we are. Right, it's great that's
2: happening because um, we're well aware that, you know, after the more recent wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, there's been a series of charitable veteran associations spring up. Whilst, with respect, this is this was supposed to be the bread and butter of the RSL.
0: So it's great that it seems we're back on target with this. We're a long way to go. Um, we just completed a second forum run um, under the heading of um, RSL Australia National but led by New South Wales both uh, recently, um, just this week in um, in Sydney but last year in Canberra. So we invited all other ESOs to come on board because a part of the uh early recommendations um, from the Royal Commission into Veteran and Defence Suicide. Um, They're looking at a peak body to oversee, looking after veterans and their families. And as you just mentioned, there's over 3,000 other ESOs out there. And the thing about these other ESOs, most of them are members of the RSL, but they've sprung up because there's certain little things that happened um, to say that the RSL is not favourable for whatever reason. And look, the judicial inquiry into RSL New South Wales didn't help matters, but I can say that the recommendations have been fully implemented uh, The findings from the findings of, of Justice Bergen and the RSL is there for a long time. It's been there since 1916, New South Wales since 1917. Um, And every town and village in Australia has got some sort of remnants of RSL. Whether the sub-branch doesn't exist in the town or not, there's still some elements in there. Uh, uh, The logo is well known. Uh, The RSL logo is well known throughout Australia as looking after veterans and their families. And that's a part of what the strategic plan is about. And also to encourage the younger veterans the veterans of the more recent wars, i.e. Iraq and Afghanistan as such, that they be a part of the RSL for the future. How do you reach out to these younger veterans? We've done some a lot of work in that, and part of our strategic plan is we implemented last year free membership and online membership. And uh, I carry it around with my uh, mobile phones and that. There's a there's a and r code, a like code that you can just scan And it gets you straight to the RSL New South Wales website and you can join. And up until I get a monthly status, but um, just recently, since uh, 1st of January last year, we've got over 3,800 new members have joined online. The younger members find technology is the way to go. We have to go with technology. Rather than going to a sub-branch meeting or downloading a form off the website, filling it out, taking it to the sub-branch meeting, which happens monthly, sometimes quarterly. Um, it takes you up anything up to three months to join the league, to be a part of the league. And uh, now you can join within five minutes. Okay, you scan the code. So it is working great with technology and with social media. We're on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram. Um, where we're rallying around the social media, which the younger veterans uh, are across. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to say that for the first time in 40 years, our, we are starting to increase slowly our membership. Yeah, good on you.
2: What would you say to our younger generation about what a life of service can do for someone?
0: I'm enthusiastic about it, and I know I'm I'm doing things, and I'm and I just can't sit still. Um, not from uh, my early days, um, even before I joined the navy, um, I was in the boxing team, I was in the rugby team, um, I was in everything that the school put up. Um, I, I still have school reunions in the in Burdick and in air, But I can say to people today is just don't be idle and, and chase what you want to do and chase what you want to do diligently and, and, and there's no hurdles that you can't get over. I find that, yes, I've been, uh, I'm busier now than I was when I was in the police force and busier now than I was in the Navy with the RSL movement because I'm getting around the state talking to people and talking to younger people and being enthusiastic about what we're doing and what the future is because we've got to look after each other. Um, and especially veterans. Uh, for, for a long time in the early days and early years, uh, veterans were looked after, but where their families has been looked after, there's a lot of issues out there and... Uh, Look, my, my, my family's followed me and my, my son is still in the military. He's a military policeman but now he's a lawyer. He's followed me into the police force. My grandson's on board HMAS Brisbane, which I'm very proud of because uh, my last ship, uh, full-time Navy, was the Brisbane but he's on the, he's on the new Brisbane. Um, he didn't follow me into the engineering branch but he's a CSO, uh, sonar man, but um, he's enjoying the life there. Um, so I, I encourage everybody to... to uh, When you finish whatever you're doing, um, if you're a military person, uh, please come into the RSL. The RSL um, is is an organisation that looks after veterans and their families and we do it well.
2: Ray, your life has been a life of just absolute service. Thank you for all that you have done and indeed continue to do today and especially thank you for coming and
0: sharing your life with us today. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. And I just want to say one last thing is that don't forget the wives and the girlfriends of all our military personnel out there because they put up with a lot too. Yeah, good on you. I'm Angus Forden, and you've been listening
2: to Life on the Line.
1: For the full story about the Melbourne-Evans collision, go back and listen to Episode 4, Collision of our Life on the Sea miniseries. We collided with the United States destroyer Frank E. Evans for the loss of 74 uh, American sailors. It was a very sad night. We broadcast this miniseries between seasons 2 and 3 of the main show. It features my interview with another survivor of the collision, Mark Kinder, as well as recordings of Angus Horden in conversation with John Philip Stevenson, the captain of HMAS Melbourne, on that fateful day. Phil Stevenson was profiled in depth for his World War II service in For School and Country, our five-part documentary series now available on our YouTube channel. Follow this podcast on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, Music by Dan Van Werkoven Thank you for listening, and lest we forget.